We're reading from 2 Samuel chapter 14. Uh, We're reading the whole chapter. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons, and they quarrelled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother he killed. And so they destroyed the here also. Thus they would not quench my coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither his name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. And she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son not be destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together for the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest, for my lord the king is like the angel of God. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Job with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my lord has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. 
And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favour in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels, which is about two and a half kilograms, by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And Absalom sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Job, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, And he summoned Absalom. So Absalom went to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Keep your Bibles open. Well, thank you, Rob, very much for reading and praying and doing it so well with uh, the tag team, uh, George and Kathy as well. Uh, fantastic to have the thing come to life uh, as it's read. But to bring it even more to life, let me ask a question. What do you think brings tears to our world? What causes suffering? Now, you might want to say it's the usual suspects. Disaster, suffering, all sorts of different things that you might want to suggest. And of course, you'd be entirely right. But I want to suggest there is something else that brings us tears, even when the usual suspects are there. There is something that we still absolutely hate. And that is when we live in a world where there is no justice. And that is what we want to see most, whether we're this size and little, or massive and important. If you're little, uh, children, and I think Hannah explained that in her little children's talk earlier, they hate it when something is unfair. And in fact, it's not just the usual cry of it's not fair, but 
actually it can leave great scars in a child's life if they feel their parents have abused their position and forced things that are unfair upon them and the scars remain and the tears come. That's true when you're little. It's true when you're important. Even if you are a ruler in the world, it is a really hard thing to make justice happen. So, for example, if you were David Cameron, what would you do about Syria? Because the president of Syria, President Ashad, is an evil man who's done atrocity on his people. So, would you take him out and punish him for what is done, will there be justice, or will you recognize that actually in his country is a great evil called ISIL, and if you take him out, guess what will fill the vacuum? What do you do in a situation like that? It's very hard to bring about justice when you've got competing, conflicting interests like that. A world without justice is an unhappy one. But so is a world without love. And that is something I don't need to take too much time. You know that. And we're going to see <coughs> how it is hard to live in a world without justice and love as we look at this chapter in the Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 14, where you see David as a dad wanted to love his son and bring him home again, but the son, if you were here last week, you'll know, committed murder and uh, had to run away. And if David was to be the king, he'd need to do something about that. How does a dad stay a king? How will justice and love come together, the two important ingredients that we need in our world. Well, let's see how it works. We're first going to see that uh, Joab, who is the one who's in charge of David's army, wants love to win. And he looks at David in chapter 14, verse 1, and he sees that uh, the king's heart goes out to Absalom. Now, let me tell you that Joab's a bit of a villain. And in the past, you'd have seen that. He just takes out anybody who gets in his way. He did that with a man called Abner early on. He's going to be doing that again, I'm afraid, in a couple of weeks' time. So he is someone who isn't always uh, the nicest of people to meet. And people would say, even in this chapter, he's being a bit of an idiot. Because what he does is to make something happen that a troublemaker is going to come and be back in the country again, causing trouble, as we will see. Joab is someone who loves to get it wrong, people say. But I think on this chapter, I'm on his side. Because what he does is he sees what his king wants. And he wants to bring that about, whatever it takes. And therefore, enter the wise woman of Tekoa, played very ably by uh, Kathleen earlier. Um, and uh, 
she comes into the picture and you've picked up the story maybe as the reading went on. What's happened, she says, is that her son, in the heat of the moment, killed his brother and now her family or her clan want justice. They want the murderer to be put to death. And you see that uh, in uh, verse 7. Now the whole clan is risen against his servants. They say, give up the man who struck his brother. We may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. We want justice, please. But she comes back and says, actually, that would not be justice. Different reasons. First, it wasn't pre-planned murder. It was, they were out in the field, they had this quarrel, and then one killed the other. Now, in the Jewish law, that would be treated differently to cold-blooded, calculated murder. So therefore, he should not be put to death. Reason one. Reason two, frankly, my clan do not want justice, they want my inheritance. And if he's dead, and soon I'll be dead, and they get everything. It's not justice. Thirdly, you're going to take away the one coal in my life, the one reason I've got to wake up in the morning? Seriously, is that justice? And then fourthly, you want, don't want to take his name away from the whole history of God's people because in Jewish circles it's important to pass on your name to the next generation. You get to snuff that out? How can that be justice? Now, we're bright people in Dagnum. We can follow the legal arguments. You've kept up with it so far, but I think Dagnum's brighter still. We've got a simple little way of summarising that argument, don't we? It goes something like this. Look, two wrongs don't make a right. Okay, he's died, but that's not going to put things right by killing the survivor. Two wrongs. That's justice argument number one. David says, fine. Verse 8, I'll go and think about it. But she isn't done. So she comes back with argument number two, which is to say, look, if he's done anything wrong, if there's to be a payment, that's what atonement means, if you're going to atone, if someone's got to pay for what he's done, let it be me. I'll be the substitute. And so what she's doing is actually tapping into another bit of the Jewish way of thinking where they all knew that when they went to the temple they could offer an animal sacrifice for the wrong things that they had done. The animal would pay as a substitute. And so she's saying, well, I can do better than that. Let it be me. I'll be the substitute who will atone for what he has done. Now, that's never going to happen because obviously she can't step in and take the punishment that her son deserves. But David immediately sees her love for him and in verse 10 he says, Right, that's it, I've decided. Don't have to wait any longer. Uh, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me. He shall never touch you again. But she still hasn't finished. She says, uh, actually there's something else. Go on, says David. 
Seconds later, I bet he's wishing he hadn't. Because what she says thirdly is actually, oh, uh, you are the person I'm talking about. You're the one who is doing the wrong thing here. You're the one. If you think that it's right for my son's life to be spared, you should be sparing your own son's life. Get him back home. Third argument, verse 14, be like God. We must all die. We're like water spilled on the ground, which can't be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means that the banished one will not remain an outcast. David, be like God. Well, that's an interesting thing that she should say that, because where would she get that from? Huh? What would make her think that God is like that? That God is in the business of devising ways to bring the banished one home. There's nothing really that would lead her to say that. As far as we can tell in the Bible, it doesn't happen. I suppose you could say it happened a bit, because if you were right from the start of the story, you know that David, when he was chased by the king at that time, a man called Saul, and he was chased outside the country, where God actually found a way of bringing him back. But look, it is different, isn't it? David hadn't done anything wrong. When she's saying, get the banished one back, she's talking about getting the one who deserved to be banished back. So it's not quite the same. But in the Bible, people say more than they know. And what she's saying is absolutely right. God does devise ways of bringing the banished one back. Just that you, she wouldn't know that looking back. To know that, you had to look forward to the time when God does not shelve justice and say, we'll come home anyway. God doesn't do that. What God does is he achieves justice by swapping sons. So his son atones, pays for, as a substitute. For the son who has been banished. So on the cross, when Jesus died, if you like, he was God's son who was paying for what murderous sons like the one in our story have done, that they can come home. And somehow David agrees to that. And so he makes a decision at the end of the chapter uh, and brings uh, Joab home and summons him into his presence. In that sense, doing what he wanted to do at the start of the chapter in verse 1, as his heart went out to Absalom at the very beginning. Love does win. But the trouble is, in that process, justice loses. There is actually no justice. 
And what you have instead is, I suppose, you could say half justice. So you've got David saying, okay, get him back, but he mustn't come into my presence. He's done something wrong, and we want to keep the distance. Make the point that it's not life as normal ever again. But the trouble is that is half justice. And it leads to half love. Because Absalom gets fed up with it and he says, look, this isn't good. We're going to have either full justice or full love. Either let my father meet me and then if I'm guilty and he decides that that is what needs to be dealt with. Well, let him, be, let him put me to death. That is a crafty lad, isn't he? He does not want to get him all the way from Gesha in order to kill him. Uh, it's a safe gamble. But he says, oh, I want full justice or full love. Let me be in his presence the way it was before. And so that's what David decides. He gets Absalom back. And then Jehoiab went to the king and he summoned Absalom and Absalom came to the king, bowed himself before the king and the king kissed Absalom. That's usually the mark of someone saying, welcome home. Later, Jesus tells a story about a prodigal son and what does a dad do when the son comes back? He gives him a kiss. Except we're going to see that Absalom is no prodigal. There's a problem. We'll see that in a moment. But let's work out what can we learn from this, this uh, uh, little uh, part of the Bible tonight. But I would suggest the first thing we can learn is if you're someone who's new to Christian, Christian things, if you're maybe listening to this uh, on our website, I wonder if you can allow me to be cheeky. Can I suggest that if you're not yet a Christian, uh, the thing that you really want of God is you don't want him to be fair. You don't want him to be just. And the way that comes across, I think, in most people's minds is I just want God to forgive me. I never want God to punish me. That's not justice. You might say it's half justice that we want. We often think like that, don't we? Well, I've done a certain amount of good and I've done a certain amount of bad, so let one balance out the other 50-50 and we'll call it quits. Half justice is what we normally like trading in. But what we're doing is saying, God mustn't be fair because if God was to be fully just then he will deal with every sin every small sin if God is fully just he will need to attend to that and if we have sinned against an eternal God then there's going to be eternal consequences but this is where it helps 
if you could only humble yourself and think that you are like Absalom in this story. That is, you deserve God to be just against you and to punish you. I'm not saying that because I want you to feel bad. I want to say that because I want to open your experience to a God that is different to the way you've experienced him. I want to open your life to the experience of verse 14. For you to know how fantastic it is for this God to bring the banished one home because it is not his plan to take life. And so we see on the cross, that is why the Lord Jesus died for you, so that you would then have full justice paid for the things that you and I have done against God, in order that we can experience full love. If you've got half justice from God, you will never experience anything but half love. Your view of God's love will be small if your view of God's justice is small. But if your view of God's justice is full and you deserve to be punished in the way that Absalom deserved to be punished, then you will understand the fullness of his love for you. That actually on the cross, what God was doing was with you personally in mind, he was devising a way to bring the banished one home. That is what he was doing. I want you to open your life to that discovery and joy and a new understanding of God. Because ultimately to be brought home to God is to live at home with the king. And to live at home with the king as your father. That is the experience we want people on our estate to have. And that includes you too. What happens if you are someone who's been around church and you know a lot of these things? What might this teach us? I want just actually, it might help people who've got a church background to realize that, hey, we can be Absaloms in our way as well. Let me show you how. See, Absalom, if you look at verse 33, he knew how to behave in front of the king, didn't he? He bowed himself to the ground before the king. He knew how to behave. He knew what to do. But he didn't think that the king needed to punish him. That's why he's saying, oh, punish me if you want, but actually I know you won't. Because frankly, the Absalom in this story can feel that he hadn't done that much wrong. After all, yes, he had killed someone, but that person deserved it anyhow. It had he coming to him. So actually, Absalom's not thinking he's done major wrong. He's thinking he's probably done a fair amount that is right. That's the difficulty with 
us who have knocked around church circles who don't fully appreciate that God would be right to judge us. And we think, well, yeah, we can excuse ourselves. There's a reason why I did what I did the other day. And there's a lot in my response and my reaction on that occasion that was right. See, the trouble with making excuses like that, us church people who do this, the trouble with that is that when you hang on to your self-righteousness, you also hang on to your sin. And what will happen in the next chapter is that Absalom, who is not the prodigal because he's still holding on to his self-righteousness and he will still carry on his sin, in the next chapter you're going to see that surface. Now it is important for us to notice the Absalom in us, not just the Absalom in the outsider. We need to be careful. But what happens if you are someone who understands that God is perfectly full of justice and perfectly full of love? How might this impact our lives tonight? And I want to suggest that actually just in this chapter alone it's good to be like Joab. Because what did Joab do? He saw in verse 1 that the heart of the king was inclined or went up to Absalom. And then he did everything in his power to bring about that reconciliation. Now, in some ways, that is what we as a church exist to do on our estate. If you're someone here tonight who understands the fullness of God's justice and the fullness of God's love, my friend, let it play on your mind, as I want it to play on my mind, that God's heart is inclined and goes out to the Absaloms out there on our estate. Let it play on your mind that God has a yearning to bring them home. Because while you're like Joab in that way, aren't you really like Jesus in that way? You see, he understood that his father was full of justice. And he understood that his father was full of love. So what did he do? He went out. And on the cross, he fulfilled God's devised plan for verse 14 to happen. Where God will not take away life, but devises means so the banished one won't remain an outcast and come back home. Now my friends, that is our task too, isn't it? We may be like Joab, we may be very conscious of our people out there who, frankly, we may not find altogether comfortable because we know they've broken the king's laws and therefore we expect there to be some difficulty between us and them if we are on the king's side. We'd expect there to be differences. It's not a comfortable journey. But from this chapter we see that actually if that is where the heart of God is, then that is where 
we need to be thinking towards as well. Evangelism starts first with prayer, pleading with God to bring the banished ones home. That's how Joab did it. Starts with a long conversation with David. That's where most of the chapter is uh, described. But then, at the end of that prayer, uh, you see that um, uh, David, uh, in uh, verse uh, 22, sends um, uh, um, sorry, verse 21 uh, sends Jab to bring Absalom home. Prayer and then go and bring them home. That's the process. And that's what we want to be doing. Let it really play on your heart and mind that your king has his heart inclined going out to our estate. And in the light of that, would you do two things? Would you be the go-between and first do your utmost to give your king what his heart desires the most? But also secondly, give the estate what it needs the most, which is a place back in the king's presence, living with the king as their heavenly father. Let's pray that God will help us to do that well, and then we'll have some questions. But first, we normally allow a minute to let people think through how they would like to talk to God personally, individually you might like to speak to him say what's on your heart from tonight and then I'll lead us and we'll have questions after that well let me pray our Heavenly Father we do want to thank you for teaching us about your love, not in a theoretical way, but in a very real, deep way, seeing how it works out in the life of a father and his son, seeing how one uh, part of his character had to be traded off against another. He had stopped being king in order to be a dad. Father, we do want to thank you that in your great goodness that uh, imbalance, that half love, that half justice. Father, we uh, thank you that that doesn't happen with Jesus. We have full love and we have full justice. We see, Lord, that there's no way we can have full love without full justice because when David and Absalom had, well, the half-love thing, there was never full love between them and Absalom goes against David again. But we thank you that 
in your case, you show us that you are full of justice and full of love. And in that joy we may live in your presence. Please help us to do that. And please help us, Father, to make that love and justice available to people around us in our state as your heart is inclined towards them. Please would you help us to be very prayerful to you, pleading with you to open the door of their heart that they might want to come back and then going out to get them. Please would you help us to be like you in a way that David couldn't be but in a way that we can be because of Jesus. Thank you for that wonderful truth that you do not uh, take away life but that you plan, you devise ways to bring the banished one home. Thank you that you are such a God and we know that because of Jesus. Amen. Amen.